Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 26, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. In these times, for those uh, hungering for a bit more intellectual honesty and some nuance along the Muslim-Jewish divide, we'll hear from two distinguished leaders in the LA metropolis. First, Dr. Ahmed Sobo, chairman of the Islamic Shura Council of Southern California. And then in the segment is Aziza Hassan, executive director of Newground, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change based in Los Angeles. Having lived lives of bridge building in some unassuming and some very privileged settings, both will individually make their cases, their best cases for crossing particular divides goodness willing. We'll be right back after a very short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Dr. Ahmed Sobo, who has just returned from visiting Christchurch, New Zealand. Dr. Sobo is the chairman of the Islamic Shura Council of Southern California. The meaning being Shura is mutual consultation. It's an umbrella organization formed in 1995 representing 78 mosques and Islamic organizations in Southern California where over a half a million Muslims live. He is imam and religious director of the Chino Valley Islamic Center, youth advisor at several Islamic centers in Southern California, and makes himself available as a speaker about Islam and Muslims at several schools, universities, churches, and other houses of worship, and on college community radio like KUCI. We're so fortunate to have him on today. He is active in the interfaith community and has served on several interfaith councils. Ahmed Sobo is a founding member of the Claremont Interfaith Group for Peace in the Middle East. Originally from Bethlehem, Dr. Ahmed Sobo moved to Orange County in 1999 to continue his education in dental school and continues to practice dentistry in Orange County since 2002. Just back from an impactful visit at Chrysler, New Zealand, he comes to us today. I believe it's from Chino Hills. Is it not, Dr. Sobo? Yes, ma'am. Welcome to uh, Ask a Leader. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good, you. good morning. It was lovely meeting you last Sunday at such an auspicious event, which we may or may not get into because there's so much to cover. I first <laughs> want to congratulate you on establishing your new center in Orange with very big plans in bringing together Muslims and other parties. It's, uh, it wouldn't it'd be a meeting place for other parties, non-Muslims, to, to join, correct? Yes, absolutely. And what, let's just think expansively, what do you dream would be the ultimate gathering, the ultimate occasion there at Shura Council? Well, the, the Shura Council is the largest Islamic organization in Southern California. It's uh, an umbrella organization representing uh, over 600,000 Muslims, uh, almost 80 uh, Islamic center and mosques uh, throughout the South, uh, Southern California area. Uh, expanding from uh, San Diego all the way to the Valley in L.A. So uh, we have a, a large uh, constituency that we represent, and we are uh, trying to be the voice of the average Muslim who walks on the street of the Southland. 
uh, our uh, goal is to create uh, um, coordination and collaboration and unity between the uh, different organizations. I mean, the Muslim community is extremely diverse from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different schools of thought, different political views. So the Shura Council works as that glue between all these organizations. It's an organization that represents these diverse uh, community members. That's from one hand, on one hand. On the other hand, the Shura Council uh, job in reaching out to other faith groups and other organizations and other uh, religious uh, organizations is definitely crucial because uh, we've been striving to create that understanding in Southern California between Muslims and their fellow uh, citizens from other faiths and other backgrounds as well. So in a nutshell, that's what the Shore Council is about. And the, it's it's a new location, but it's it's been in existence since '95. So I I just don't know if uh, it's this is what we can do. We can be kind of uh, you know a little bit more casual and 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 have you just like what would be like the dream kind of of occasion at Shura? So the location that we have is is considered the headquarters of the community yes. of Southern California. That is the, the idea behind it. And being the headquarters of the Muslim community in Southern California, we definitely, uh, it's open for meetings, leadership meetings mainly. Mainly, um, okay. Press releases, um, all kind of stuff that will show the voice of the Muslims of uh, Southern California. And uh, we, we've been, have, the, the organization been, as you said, since 1995. It's just recently that we move to this uh, beautiful new location that's centralized in the Southland. And, uh, yeah. Right. Well, let's have you have a chance to talk about your recent trip from which you've returned at Christchurch, New Zealand. Could you, let's just begin with, talk about how the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern weighed in as a head of state and how her constituents responded to how she weighed in. First of all, it's beyond words that we can express our amazing uh, feelings about how the leadership of the country of New Zealand dealt with that uh, tragedy. It is not every day that you see such a leader who is down to earth, who felt with uh, her uh, constituents and her citizens, for regardless of their faith, regardless of their background, because this is a tragedy and this is a massacre that happened, unfortunately. But the way the New Zealanders dealt with it was amazing, was beyond what, we, what my words can explain. So um, when we, as leaders of the community here, we felt that, you know what, there is a need for uh, a representation of the Muslim community and the American yes. uh, in, in this on those days in New Zealand, we said, you know what, this is the time to put our words into action and just drop everything and go, uh, especially that not a lot of leaders from around the world chose or cho- to, or decided to, to participate in the funeral or show solidarity in person there. So um, I personally uh, called them, uh, contacted the Los Angeles mayor's office, and immediately they, they, sent, they gave me a letter on behalf of the mayor and behalf of the citizens of Los Angeles. Oh. And I took it and I went and met the, the mayor of Christchurch 
and her deputy and her chief of staff, and I gave them the letter, and they were highly, highly appreciative for that uh, showing of solidarity. Um, the 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 people of New Zealand are among the most, the sweetest and the nicest people <laughs> that we've met in person that I met in my life. I mean, the way they they greeted everybody, the way they were so welcoming, the way they were all in pain, regardless of their backgrounds. They were all in pain and shock of what happened in their hometown uh, and in their country. So uh, that's pretty much uh, what we felt from the people of New Zealand, and it's just something amazing that that came out of this tragedy. Well, I guess it, it then it's sort of self-evident of what um, you were saying about how her leadership sort of there's a goodwill ripple effect throughout her constituency of uh, people responding to this. I, I hear people, I heard you say the word tragedy. I guess I just want to give you and give all jur- journalists permission to use the word catastrophe instead of tragedy. I think it. Oh, yeah. I think in American parlance, and it may have affected your word choice, but in American parlance, I think catastrophe is, it, it's, it's, there were too genteel in our language to use the words that strike that, but I think that that really uh, is what captures for me how how horrific the attack was there in Christchurch. So um, as we talk about this tragedy, oh. uh, we're I understand, and it's sort as I said, self evident what how her uh, represent or how Jacinda Ardern's Ardern's um, constituency responded with the kind of uh, leadership that she offered. So I'd like to know, on your personal level, how did you connect with those that were present at those different meetings after the attack? So when we uh, went there, our goal was to uh, reach out to the families who lost loved ones and reach out to those who survived the attack and they're still in the hospital and they were still being treated and their families as well, and trying to reach out to the people and try to meet with the people, the locals over there who are uh, not from the Muslim community. So these three goals that were in our minds when we uh, went and visited, of course, each one of these groups um, gave us a new perspective on things and made us, we were amazed by, by different ways how they reacted to the catastrophe, as you mentioned, as you, as you called it. So the families of the victims uh, were, some of them were devastated, especially if mm, it's a, yes. a father who lost his three-year-old boy, right. or a wife who was newly wed who lost her husband, or a young woman with three kids who lost the father of those three kids, uh, or few brothers who lost their elderly father. So meeting and dealing and talking to these people they were they were very very devastated. But on the other hand, we saw groups of people who were very strong and hopeful that this catastrophe will bring goodness into the world, will bring awareness to hate, and people will get together and fight hate uh, together, united. So that that's when it comes to the families of the victims. When we met the survivors, they were in kind of mixed feelings between their they they, they want to be happy that they survived, but they feel sad that they lost their friends, they lost their buddies, they lost their brothers and sisters, and they kind of felt a little bit guilty that right. they survived and their friends did not make it. 
Well, um, and it's early. It's still there's that the shock element. They're they're not fully processing absolutely. all of this yet. So it's a, when you were on the scene. Absolutely. And well, then I, many of them had had re- recalled the whole incident and told us the details <sighs> of every single moment of the of the catastrophe and how the the the, the terrorist, how we like to call him, walked in and he started committing his his terror and his crime, and they saw everything. So that's another thing that we we also got to witness and, and firsthand and hear. Well, uh, one thing I found very interesting was uh, the in was it in uh, various areas presented the Maori Haka. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. The Islamic welcome of the indigenous Hakka chant and dance. Did you get to see that? Were you? Uh, were you? Uh, did you? Can you react to those, that too? Those Maoris were just amazing. They were just uh, uh, the way they, uh, they they felt betrayed in their hometown by by such a terrorist. The way they uh, uh, th- these people are so full of uh, uh, honor. And they they got together and they said, you know, we're going to be protecting our neighbors. We're going to be protecting our Muslim neighbors uh, in our towns. And one of the ways they showed honor and respect to the victims is by showing their uh, traditional dances and showing up with their bikes and, and being around the hmm. funerals. And it was just heart heartwarming. Like It was really something that we were touched by. And we saw how they... Uh, I mean, one of the Maoris came to me, and a young, young man, maybe in his 20s, and his eyes full of tears. And, and you won't expect some, someone who's tough like this and who's strong will be crying. And then, and then he knew that I'm coming all the way from America. He gave me a huge hug. Oh. And then he pulled out his uh, pants and, and he, uh, his, his uh, sleeve, showed me a, a tattoo on his oh, calf. Yes. That he just. <laughs> made just after the attack. What was it? Uh, it was a picture of a Muslim woman with a scarf and tears coming out from her eyes. Oh. And on top of it, it has a olive branch representing peace, and then it says, you are us. So it was such <sighs> an amazing thing to see right there. Oh, what a marvel. I, I'm so glad that you brought that to our, uh, to brought our, to our awareness here. For those yeah. of you who've just joined, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is Dr. Ahmed Sobo, and he's chairman of the Islamic Shura Council of Southern California. It's counties all over, or the, around Orange County. And he's recently returned from Christchurch, New Zealand, just relaying a phenomenal uh, tell here about the uh, one individual, one Maori person whose tattoo carries the theme of this catastrophe that was perpetrated in Christchurch. So um, I wanted to find out how did you, Dr. Sobo, reach out to the Muslims in Christchurch who thought New Zealand was going to be a safe place? They had, they, they had a huge adjustment to make to this reality. How did you connect with them? You know what? When we decided to travel, it was a very quick decision. We did not plan for anything. We said, we're just going to go, and we'll just find where the funeral and the cemetery is, and we'll just go do our, give our uh, respect and pray with the, with the people at the funeral. We did not expect that we're going to 
uh, connect with anybody oh. in, a, in, a, in an official way for when it comes to the game. But the moment we arrived and people met us there and they, we just found a random person at the airport to ask us where you're coming from. And then when they heard our story, they, they immediately called people around and they said, hey, there are a few people coming from the United States, from California. And that's, that was it. That was it. I mean, we got people re- coming, picking us up, taking us around, connecting us with the, the families, connecting us with the youth, especially that our delegates included several uh, uh, community speakers who are known worldwide, who are who have YouTube videos and who have lectured all around the world. Oh, so that's they're kind right. Of celebrities to the youth. So when the youth saw us there, they were so touched and they're so uh, happy to see people like like those in their own town, and that made them feel better. So that that's, it was all planned by a divine order, I would say. Oh, and I guess for those who understand Arabic, I mean, not, not every Muslim is fluent in Arabic, but knows many, many key words and all that, but shura, for the mutual consultation, must have been a consoling mantle for you to bring to them at this time. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I I want to, while we're talking about this, there's a, an amazing backdrop. Uh, you provided to me in advance of this interview a chapter of American Muslims in the Age of President Trump written by Amir Hussein, and he sets a number of things straight for us to consider as we're moving through our bridge building, and as you continue to offer that, and I, I, I just want to point out a few things that you were kind enough to, to convey to me through that chapter was the first Muslim that arrived was a slave. The first Muslim arrived in the Americas that is noted is a slave. It was in 1539 with the Spanish conquistador Panfilo Navarez. Uh, that was 90 years, as uh, Mr. Hussein points out, 90 years before the pilgrims. So we, we have to just c- c- let that sink in, how far back the Muslims were coming to, to, the, U- to the Americas. And an interesting... A point about the difference between European and American Muslim demographics that it sets, it gives uh, Shura a lot of opportunities, the demographic that's coming to America. It's a very educated, very diverse, yeah, multicultural, um, most Arab demographic that you have to work with here versus what is happening in Europe. Can you speak to some of those points that he's talked about, Mr. Hussein? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So, so uh, Europe in it, it, it's trying to preserve its identity as a, a certain uh, like homogeneous culture. Mm-hmm. So any any immigrants or any foreign influx into the into the continent or, or the European countries is always dealt as as foreigners. It's always dealt as you stay in that neighborhood, you stay in the ghettos, you stay there, you do your thing. We need we need laborers, we need workers. Not necessarily that they wanted them to integrate and become part of the society, which is completely the opposite of what's happening in the United States. In America, all immigrants came in and they immediately blended into the society. They became part of the the melting pot, as they say. Uh, but uh, in addition to that, the Muslims who came to America, they were very diverse, and majority of them are highly educated: doctors, engineers, professors, computer. Scientists and and so on and so forth. While in Europe, it, it's mainly the demand was for uh, uh, skilled workers and laborers. 
So you'll see these two differences between the Muslims in Europe and the Muslims in, in America. So that's to start with. In, in America, the Muslims, they developed the identity that's called the American Muslim identity. In other words, we're not necessarily identify ourselves as uh, Indians or Egyptians or Saudis or Palestinians. We now are identifying ourselves as Americans. And this uh, amazing uh, way of looking at things, Europeans still uh, did not get to uh, to identify themselves that way, at least for on, on the in the general uh, term. So this is how this is also another difference that American Muslims compared to European Muslims. Unfortunately, the, in the times of President Trump, things are being going backward a little bit because of some of the things that he said, and some of the rhetoric that he expressed during his speeches, especially during the campaign that he uh, led back in uh, a few years ago, uh, where he said, Islam hates us, where he said, we need to ban all Muslims from coming to the United States. These things did cause major a rift. Yes, the abs- a rift absolutely. Where where people who are uh, not in the Muslim community felt that that's how they should treat Muslims in general, and then Muslims themselves they started questioning, like, what is this about? We understand that we're Americans. We understand that we're part of this country, part of this society, being talked about that way. So definitely, that caused major. Uh, and the slave as well. So one of the charges of Shura and what is brought up in Mr. Hussein's article is about the getting involved, moving into, it's not just about turning out voters, it's running for political office, it's about making yourselves available to media, and this is an example of that. You, you could be doing a lot of other things, but you're, well, you're here joining us on college radio right now. So um, I wanted to, one thing that Jim Wallace's quote is saying in Mr. Hussein's article, that I'm going to quote him thoroughly, he says, um, hatred of Islam, he reminds his Muslim friends, is, isn't the same as slavery or Jim Crow. Perhaps this is simply our time to pay our dues so that we can be fully recognized as the Americans that we are. Or to use a darker metaphor, perhaps it's now our turn to be jumped in. End of the quote from uh, Mr. Hussein's article. What jumping in could you imagine that what that would mean? Um, well, there are several ways that we can jump into this and make this time an opportunity to, to improve things rather than just uh, complain about it is that we are at times that America needs some people to work on to helping or fixing things that are happening. And I think if we can take that opportunity and we become the solution for some of the problems that are happening around us in the society, whether it's uh, health care uh, issues uh, or insurance issues, whether it's political other uh, stuff, whether it is environmental stuff, wh- whatever it is, if we can come up with and be, with solutions, with the uh, answers to many questions that's happening around us, and we become part of solving the problem, uh, that will, in my personal opinion, would be one of the best things that we can do as an American Muslim community. So in 
as we're beginning to wind down a little bit, it's all hands on deck, I would propose that uh, deepening those interfaith connections. And that that was one thing. Reza Eslan was here at UCI, I'm going to say around two plus years ago. And he was saying, you know, every it's not just about the, the, the voting kinds of behavior and all that, but he says, all the Muslims get out and make friends. Just get known. Make yourselves. Uh, no, I mean, it was. No, it's a very it's a subversive act to be sociably, you know, amenable. I mean, that's that then there's no more sort of waving this Sharia red meat kind of uh, metaphor around everywhere. But that's so that's uh, that those kinds of interconnections that Mr. Zane's talking about that is talking uh, that Reza Eslan talks about and others. And you're so as we're winding down the interview, the deepening of the interfaith connections is something that's going on. I, if you could, as we're transitioning into the article, the interview I'm going to be having with Aziza Hassan is what you, with New Ground, what you're going to move in and some sorts of initiatives to make from the most casual to the more formal institutional kind of interfaith connection. Absolutely. So, so this is not new. Muslims in America have been building those friendships and bridges for many years, decades. I myself have been involved in the interfaith work since yes. 2002. Yes. So we're talking about close to 17 years. My building alliances with them. You're chopping up a little bit. I'm, I'm not sure for your position. So, yeah. So what what us been doing, building those bridges and relationships with the interfaith community my call, actually, country, uh, or from the other side of uh, Reza Aslan's uh, point of view, is that I'm calling the, the, the outer, the larger society, the non-Muslim community, the yes. community, go and find a Muslim and, 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 and build a friendship with them, build a relationship with them. You will be amazed by how friendly, how, uh, how uh, pleasant that these relationships are. Would be how how beneficial and how, and and educational uh, benefit that you can get out of these friendships and out of these bridges. The Muslims are there, extending their hands, waiting for the other side to come and say, "Here's our hands as well." Uh, when you see a woman wearing a scarf in the mall, just give her a smile, just uh, tell her salam or tell her good morning. Uh, if we see a gentleman who identifies himself as a Muslim. Start a conversation with them. It doesn't have to be about politics. It doesn't have to be about religion. It could be it about maybe sports, shouldn't be. be about maybe it should be something pretty pedestrian, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, definitely, uh, understanding and taking away the misconceptions about Islam and Muslims will be one of the best things that we can do to our American nation to improve the, the, the this situation and to get rid of Islamophobia and, and Mesoislamia. Yes, that's uh, maybe we'll make that the last question is you mentioned those two words. I've had Ani Zonefeld and I imagine she from Muslims for Progressive Values. She's been involved in working with you in interfaith kind of work. Um, correct. I am not very. Oh, OK. I'll make sure that you two yeah. get in touch with each other the, <laughs> between the two of you. World peace will be here 
uh, on the day after tomorrow. I, that just between the two there. But so, but what she was the first one to bring Miso Islamia to my attention, and I I ran this by my brain trust yesterday. Why is Miso Islamia not a word that is used? And it was for her as a uh, a secular uh, Muslim from Iran originally, and she had not heard the Miso Islamia word before, but she could explain that fear of something is a, a sort of a gentler way of talking about antipathy than talking about the hatred of something, which miso Islamia is. Is that, are you of a similar opinion that there, we're treading lightly when we're trying to talk about this rift? Yeah, the more when we use the term is Islamophobia yes. has been used to, to refer to both the fear of Muslims and the hate of Muslims and Islam. And and what I think academia is trying to do is trying to differentiate between the fear of Muslims and the hate of Muslims. Because the fear of Islam doesn't necessarily reflect into hate. Someone might be afraid of a terrorist attack that you can imagine going to happen or going to be performed by a Muslim. Uh, doesn't mean that they're going to develop that or transfer it into transform it into hate or act upon that hate. So I think what the scholars and academians are trying to do is trying to differentiate between the fear of Islam, which is Islamophobia, and the hate of Islam, which is Misa Islamia. That's the new term that's been coming up yes, that people new. have been, been talking about. And so, inshallah, that leadership in our country takes a sheet out of the brochure from Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and sets us on a companionable path in the United States society. Amen to that. Well, I I must say it's been a real honor having you, Dr. Ahmed Sobo, on. Thank you for taking the time to be on Ask a Leader today. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Dr. Sobo is from the Shura Council. It's a center in Orange County for all of Southern California counties. We'll be right back, and we're going to speak with Aziza Hassan from Newground. Don't go away. We'll be right back. That's a track from Khalife's album, I Shall Name You. Thank you for everybody for staying tuned on Ask a Leader. Welcome back. My next guest is interfaith and grassroots activist Aziza Hassan. She is executive director of New Ground, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change based in Los Angeles. Her work has been by the Chronicle of Philanthropy recognized, and she's extensive experience in program management and coalition building, an experienced mediator and conflict transformation practitioner. She's also co-facilitate multiple groups. Aziza's work has been featured on OZ, Yahoo News, MSN, Public Radio Speaking of Faith with Krista Tippett, woohoo, and uh, the, the U.S. Institute for Peace, Arabic Radio, Television, and the Los Angeles Times. While with AmeriCorps Service, she was involved in community organizing and group 
problem solving. She earned the President's Volunteer Service Award under President George W. Bush. Aziza then served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. The Executive Service Corps recognized her with the Megan G. Cooper Leadership Award. She's currently serving on the on Los Angeles Mayor Garcetti's Interfaith Advisory Council and is a volunteer mediator with his attorney's office. So Aziza Hassan was born and raised. This is important. We're going to try. We're going to be collapsing a lot of her background into this and what she'll talk about in the interviews. She's born and raised in Amman, Jordan, by a Muslim father and a Christian mother educated in private schools, regularly attending both a mosque and a church. Following her father's death, he was just 50, Aziza's mother took the family to Kansas, continuing to raise the four children as Muslims. Aziza completed her Bachelor's of Arts in History and Social Science at Bethel College and her Master's in History at Wichita State University. She's married to a Pakistani-American with whom she's raising two young sons. When I was at an event headlining Congresswoman Ilhan Omar uh, Sunday, I mentioned to many of the participants that I was going to have the opportunity to interview Ms. Hassan, and their reaction was palpable What with the remarkable path that Aziza Hassan has blazed. She comes to us today from Los Angeles. Finally, here's her voice coming. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Aziza Hassan. It is a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for that. I think you covered everything. Well, um, no, no, no. That's what you're going to do right from here on here. Well, let's <laughs> let's start briefly. And I don't mean to give it short shrift, but we have so many things to cover. Start briefly by hearing a bit of your story. With uh, There are some formative experiences and developments that brought you to this career of activism. Maybe you could talk about uh, beginning with the, your, the, ex, your sister's experiences and how your mother meted out uh, improving some of the pedagogies with how the school was dealing with Islam and all that in Kansas. Absolutely. So um, we were in a small town in uh, in Kansas, and I remember my sister, I was already in college, my sister walked in through the front door, I was home to do my laundry, um, and she, like Annie's face was red, and I know from experience when Annie's face is red, it's not good, and then the tears just erupted down her cheeks, and they wouldn't stop, and I couldn't get her to tell me anything. It was clear that she was hurting. And when she finally spilled, like, was able to mutter some words, she had said that her teacher had said something in class and that she didn't feel like she belonged. Um, and in that moment, like, I'm this older sister, I was supposed to have all the answers, and I completely felt stuck. I didn't know how to respond. I felt like we had done everything right. We were, you know, on the honor roll. We were active in clubs. We were active in student body like leadership, doing all sorts of things, and here we were, and it was clear that we still didn't belong. Until this day, I can't tell you what it is that the teacher said, but I know how exactly how I felt. Wow. And I know that, like, it felt like we just, we, we, we were less than, and, like, we, we didn't have a place. And that night, my mom came home from a second shift at Kmart, because she was a single mom raising four kids. Um, and my sister told her the story, and my mom had a completely different response than I did. She said, you know what, we're going to go to school tomorrow. And so she did. She went to school. She pulled in the counselor, and the counselor um, pulled in the teacher, and, the, and she told them what happened. Um, and the teacher was completely horrified that he had hurt his, his student, um, which was 
to me a huge shock. Like he was, he was devastated that he had said something that had actually hurt her. And over the course of several days and weeks, and which eventually turned into days, like he mentored and asked her questions and drew her out more in class. Um, and he eventually mentored and drew out my brothers too, because both of them are younger than Annie. Um, and that to me was one of these really big experiences that helped shape and remind me that sometimes, just like my mom did, you have to put one foot in front of the other and you have to go and say, my child is hurting right now. Can you see her pain and can you help me work through this? And that when the other side or like when the person receiving is actually willing to listen and to hear the pain and to work through it, you can have a much more beautiful, solid outcome um, to the point that like now this, this teacher has become the principal of the school and he had me come back to speak to talk about my work oh. just a few years ago. And it's, oh. it's the, that power of having a real conversation where we're actually talking about what hurts. All those ingredients, everything had to be there. Your sister had to respond and move out out of being shocked or, or traumatized. She had to express her her grief in that encounter. She And your mom had to know the pedagogically most sound way. The receiver had to not be defense. I mean, everything had to go right. So it's like everybody, we've got like we've got a clipboard of things to sort of be watchful of and, and, and be prepared. I mean, it's like all of us being prepared for what could be happening so we're not uh, blindly witnessing, we're, we're activating, and you know, all those pieces have to happen. And, it, it, and, and I wanted to give a chance to sort of honor what your mother did, and, and it certainly explains how you've come to where you are from, from something that extremely constructive and productive. So let's take that formative experience and have you talk about the charter of new ground partnership what exactly is framed in the muslim jewish partnership differentiating uh between israelis and jews and muslims and arabs and well i know that's an unwieldy point but that but new ground is trying to take all that on and get this conversation going very intimately how does tell us about that charter Gladly. Um, so Newground focuses on transforming community through the power of relationships. And we zero in on Muslim and Jewish relationships specifically um, because we recognize that a lot of different groups, like you mentioned a number of them, like even like, I mean, there's Christian Arabs as well. And yes. then like there, you know, you had Ahmed Subhan, like there's the sizable community in Bethlehem and in Ramallah, which is kind of close to where my family comes from. And so like there's, there's a lot of other people that um, have a stake. Like we in particular have focused on Muslims and Jews because um, when we open up the conversation too big, sometimes we lose sight of the ability to dig in much deeper. And so our work really digs deep, really kind of goes under and into the pain that I was talking about. Yes. Because there is a power of being able to see the other when we're able to really spend the time focusing on each other as individuals. And so Newground has a number of different programs. Some of them are 10-month-long programs. So two of our 10-month-long programs, one is for high school students, the other is for professionals, people from a variety of backgrounds with different connections to religiosity from like modern Orthodox Jews, you know, all wow. across the spectrum to conservative and 
um, reform, reconstructionist, and humanist Jews, and then also a broad spectrum on the Muslim side. Um, because here in Southern California, Muslims and Jews, um, like, Roughly similar numbers, demographics-wise. It depends on who you're talking to. The problem is, is that nobody can really track it, um, right. census-wise. Um, but like, you know, we can guess how many Muslims or guesstimate. Um, and you know, I mean, we have these sizable populations, and we do have like this broad spectrum. And we also have these um, statements that I hear over and over again, that like, you know, Muslims believe or Jews believe, and like those sentences are simply a setup for failure because there's no such thing. Like, Muslims come from so many different backgrounds, so many different cultural backgrounds, and Jews also, like, have a broad spectrum. Like, there's even a saying that says you get two Jews in a room, you get three opinions. Like, right. <laughs> I think you can see that same thing in the Muslim community and a lot of other communities, too, and that, like, there is no substitute for human interaction. That when you get two people in front of each other, even if they disagree, like, it is possible for them to talk about what it is that they both agree on, what they disagree on, really go into it, not feel like they have to let go of their moral positioning, but rather that they can sit there and really wrestle with the content and be able to look at each other in the eye um, and find some deeper understanding that, that that is truly possible. I'd like for you... Aziz Hassan, to lay out the new ground values available um, as part of your chart. Could you just go through, a, I don't hope you don't mind, an, another lightning round kind of a way of doing it. Tell us about those new ground values. Of course. So first is curiosity over assumptions. That I'd love that. Me. I just, that just endeared me no end. Mm. Absolutely. And like, it's one of these things that if we can turn to wonder first, if we can just, just think about like asking what's a question I could ask that doesn't have an agenda that really just tries to, to see like what it is that the other person's actually saying. Because sometimes like, you know, the people will say things and we know that our buttons are being pushed. Um, and we want to assume, right, and really quickly based on our past experiences. And while, like, assumption and judgment are important, like, defense mechanisms, when we can, especially if we're in, like, a safe situation, if we can just slow down just a little bit to ask a question that is curious, that maybe turns to wonder, we can actually start to open up the conversation instead of feeling stuck in what it is that we're assuming. Um, and then the second is relationships before politics. Mm -hmm. So we definitely get into the politics, but we build up to the politics. So first we start with making sure the two, or in our case, it's roughly um, eight Jews, eight Muslims. It can be a little bit more, up to 12 and 12. Okay. Um, that they are, you know, in the same cohort these 10 months together, but that, that we start to build the relationships first. And so they'll be meeting once every two weeks for three and a half hours each meeting. Wow. And then they do these two long weekend retreats. And retreats really just mean that we're going to exhaust every emotional outlet that you have. Um, mm. So like you, you know, people will come in on Friday and they will, uh, so that, and it's before Shabbat, so before the sun sets on Friday, all the way through Sunday afternoon. Um, and oh, wow. people are committed to being, you know, with each other, 
Um, we have a Muslim and a Jew sleep in the same room together. Um, and so, you know, you, you say things to each other. There's facilitators who are there who are paying attention to who's holding back, who's speaking too much, and helping people kind of find an equilibrium so that everyone has a space to express their thoughts. Um, and to, to help really build a relationship first, and then we start to transition into, into the different realms of politics. So we'll talk about Islamophobia, we'll talk about anti-Semitism, we'll talk about Islam in America, Judaism, etc. And eventually, about 60% of the way through the program, we really take a deep dive into Israel-Palestine and talk about in a series of different conversations, starting with that second retreat, and then hearing the stories of people and how they've been impacted and how those stories have really impacted us and our families. So the relationship is that, is the thread that also pulls people back in. So we respect that people will want to walk away at one point, but the relationships are the really literally the threads that will pull people back into the conversation when we're ready. Um, and so that's why the relationships are so critical for us. And then the third is plurality over parity. So with plurality, we mean having a respect for all of our differences. Um, it, with, you know, anything that's Muslim, Jewish, or you put any two different groups together, we want to make sure that each of us is equal. Um, and while that's important, it's also important to recognize that we all have different talents and that we all become stronger when we allow our different talents to thrive um, in each other's company. And so that's why making sure that we have differences and really honoring our differences um, is an important part of who we are. The fourth is local over international. Mm -hmm. And so we definitely, we still get to the international, but we really emphasize the local. And because, you know, the, we're talking about, like, We Newground started in 2006. And so, and it was built off of this, like, research study that was conducted where two um, researchers were hired to go and interview and research and see what had gone wrong with, um, with Muslim-Jewish uh, interfaith relations. And so there are really specific reasons why we have these, these values. Specific to this one is that when we emphasize the international all the time, um, and we, and, and we don't have the rest of these values, we lose sight of some of the really big issues that we need to be wrestling with here. So um, folks from different government entities in that research study had said that, you know, they had watched Muslims and Jews walk away from the table on issues connected to bullying in public schools ah. um, because of the international. And I'm, you know, I'm a mom of two young children, and, like, that to me is, like, really disturbing. Um, and like, there are really, so I think that, you know, the international is absolutely important, and it has my attention a lot, and I think there's a lot that Muslims and Jews have to both lose and gain when we don't emphasize local. Right. Um, and then the, the next one is respect for self-definition. Mm -hmm. So I respect, you know, someone else's definition of how they want to be called, and I would ask for the same um, for myself and for other people in our group. So if uh, a lot of times we want to put litmus tests on each other, that new ground doesn't do. We engage everyone um, if they are willing to engage. Um, 
so long as like they want to come to the table, we will be there um, because we really respect the need to have difficult conversations. Um, and that's how we can figure out how to navigate with a deeper sense of understanding. Mm-hmm. But like for me as a Palestinian woman, um, it matters a lot for me to be called a Palestinian woman. Um, and so like that's how I choose to define myself. And it means a lot when people are willing to call me that. Um, sorry, it's Palestinian-American woman. Like, that's, there's, like, all these different definitions right. and, and, and pieces of who we are. And being able to respect, like, you know, this is a piece of me, that is a piece of me. Like, I'm also a mom, I'm also a feminist, I'm also, you know, all these other different things. You're like, and I'm, a, and I'm a Muslim. Like, all these different parts of identity that are important and integral to me. And when people don't, aren't willing to see that, I feel like a part of me is being shut down. Um, and so that's why we respect that for other people as well as ourselves. Um, and then the last two are safe and open space. So safe and open space is to create a space that really, truly honors many different perspectives and that each person has the ability to and a space for them to speak to speak from their heart, to speak um, and tell their story, um, and that they all deserve the for people to listen and to hear them. And by hear them, we don't just mean, like, being quiet. We mean, like, you know, someone actively, you know, listening and even repeating things back to them that they might have said um, and engaging them with questions afterwards. So it's, a, it's the setup of a space that truly honors each other. And then the last of our values is nimble and responsive. Yes. So it's to, it's to really be able to, to be there for each other um, and to, to be able to move because like the value of being able to pick up the phone because something has happened and we really don't understand okay, that's... Um, and to have somebody who you can talk to and say, look, I, I, I really am I'm struggling right now and I need to be able to understand this. And so, like, you know, we have really gone after different um, leaders in different or like places all the way, you know, across Southern California um, to make sure that when things happen, like they have somebody that they can talk to and they can at least find some deeper understanding. Um, and so a lot of our work is also behind the scenes, um, which is a really important thing. That, Absolutely. Like, there's, there's a place for all of it. For those, um, I just want to mention, because it's been a while, I, I want to give everybody a chance to know who they're listening to. My guest is interfaith and grassroots activist Aziza Hassan. She's director of New Ground, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change, and it's based in Los Angeles, and she's gone over these New Ground values. I'm so glad you could explain all of those. It, it, it's, a, it's a marvel of a charter, and it gives us all a sort of a walking program around which we can maybe informally, maybe casually in the, any moment sort of take those facets into our everyday encounters. I know that it's a much, much more carefully orchestrated kind of pedagogy of an internet of an institutional kind. But I think hearing that from you now, we can all think about how that could translate in everyday casual interactions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Thank you. Absolutely. So I just want to know, is New Ground coalescing with other organizations and who are they so we know that uh, you're using you're leveraging everything you've got all these terrific approaches with the resources of everybody else around oh absolutely like we have been i mean you name it like we are actively seeking people to go through our fellowships so we're going to different organizations 
and leaders and saying, like, you know, we want your your best and your brightest. We're not going to take them from you. We just want them to go <laughs> through our program. Oh. Um, because we want them to, to be able to talk to each other. Because I think a lot of the polarization that we're witnessing, even on a national scale, it, you could have some solid benefits by just having people being able to talk to each other. Um, and so, like, for in terms of like the like we actually have connected like a number of different you know organizations across southern california um mosques and synagogues like that's that's really how we draw in our folks and even educational institutions so mainly so, worship centers not uh-huh. so i mean like j street's working with you and i imagine care is it, you name it like All it's across them. the spectrum we've and and Ozzy- our j street members we've had folks who are were staff at care they're not no longer there but like there's we've had people from you know all the way across the spectrum from you know impact the muslim public affairs council we've had people from the islamic center of Southern california from san gabriel um valley mosque like you you name it all the way across the spectrum so that's aziza really has, intentional on our part yes i'm sorry aziza hassan i want you to take there's a this sort of gnarly uh, pro- paradox that i think about when i hear discussions and it, it's local and it's international back to those tenets you're talking about for new ground values that the paradox around what some consider makes us safer could you speak to that i'm so glad you brought up that question like especially what i've seen is like you know when and we see it. It's something that just as human beings that we do is that when we feel less safe, we tend to circle our wagon. Um, And when we do that, while it might feel like we're protecting our own, um, we actually become less safe. Um, And what really put this front and center for me um, recently was I I remember like the, the tree of life um, massacre, like awful tragedy unfolded. In Pennsylvania, yes. And it yes. was that weekend, yes, in Pennsylvania. Um, and like all the details were coming out and I just, I, it was it was such a hard moment to sit through. And so I remember being at the, the federal building. Um, there was a huge vigil here in Los Angeles and I saw a sea of thousands of faces um, uh-huh. in front of me and, and like a lot of faces from so many different face backgrounds. Um, and to my to it, like off in the distance, I like I saw somebody standing there with this big sign that said "Make America Great Again," um, and then I saw one of our change makers, uh, Omar Hakim, who actually runs the Elm Foundation, which stands for Intellect, Love, Mercy, here in Los Angeles, and like he's this tall, like solid African American man, and I saw him like kind of talking to the guy who was holding the big post, the big the big sheet that said "Make America Great Again." Um, and then I saw one of our Jewish uh, graduates from our program, who now works for Newground, her name is Andrea Hodos, also yes. kind of meet with Omar. And together, they literally had each other, their, their backs to each other. Um, but Omar started moving, like, like, his back was to her, and he was talking to the guy with the sign, and she started talking to this other young Jewish gentleman who was wearing a shirt that said, Punch a Nazi. Um, oh. And the young Jewish man was, was shaking, like he was visibly upset and angry at this guy who had the big sign. Um, and so Andrea started talking to, to the young, younger Jewish man, and she started asking him questions until she started to draw him out and literally help him calm down. 
Um, and eventually with her body, like, she literally started walking with him and, and took him away from the other guy. And Omar took the other, the man with the sign, away from the crowd because there were other people who were also upset at that moment. And so I think of how Omar and Andrea literally had their backs towards each other, knowing that the other would have the other's back. And that in that moment, like, we were all able to grieve. We all went home and we all had that space that we needed that night. Um, and if we had just circled our wagons and just stayed Jews with Jews, Muslims with Muslims, and whoever with whoever, like, we would, you know, who knows what would have happened. But, like, we have a really big, like, a lot is at stake. And Muslims and Jews and allies and so many people from so many other backgrounds, like, we can build a much safer society yes. Yes. if we stop circling our wagons and we start talking to each other. So with no time left, I just want to close the interview with just posting, folks. You will be appearing tomorrow at the Shapiro Synagogue on Mulholland Drive, and the topic will be God in the Voting Booth, the Role of Religion in American Politics. It'll be tomorrow evening. People can go to the New Ground website for that, and you will be having an iftar in Beverly Hills. I love that. We ha we had an iftar at a synagogue last year during Ramadan. So that, folks, you can put that on your calendars for May 5th. So I want to thank you, Aziza Hassan, Executive Director of the New Ground Muslim-Jewish Partnership for Change in Los Angeles. Thank you so much for being on the show today. So grateful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank we you so much. love to have you all on May 15th. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to get up there. So as I close, that was my wrap. Next week, I'm going to have on the California Auditor's Office. They're going to talk about the California Redistricting Commission because it's time to sign up soon. Meet sooner here in Irvine. So Craig Tyrrell will talk about the Wayward Artist's second season returning this spring to Santa Ana. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.